Ruth, I've said it every week so far, Ruth is a prodigal story. It's a story where a daughter, Naomi, goes out full and returns home empty and humiliated, only to be lavishly restored again in the end. The story follows God's familiar pattern of death and division and then resurrection and redemption and restoration. Death and then resurrection. Division and then redemption, then restoration. So it is fertility made barrenness to be, to be made abundantly fruitful at last. Fertility made barrenness to be made fruitful. Ruth is a story of a king ascending like a sunrise to break into our dark night and banish hopelessness and despair. It's like a sunrise. By faith, we see the story of a son and a king who comes to receive his inheritance and who brings gifts with him, a son who himself becomes a gift. Ruth points us to Christ, the light of the world, and to the good news of God's sovereign grace. And by this light, we see everything else. By the light of the gospel, by the light of Christ, we see everything else. And so here we are at the fourth and the final scene in the story of Ruth. It's just a short book in the Old Testament, just four chapters. So we've covered one, two, three. Here we are, chapter four. And we finally get to the conclusion of this particular story, which, you know, as it turns out, is what? It's just the beginning of the next story. It's just the beginning of another story. It's not really an end at all. It's, it's a piece. It's a piece of a greater story with a greater redeemer, a greater inheritance, and a greater son. Ruth is a story, and when it ends, it only leads us into the greater story of redemption, the greater inheritance, greater son, right? So we conclude the book of Ruth. Let's pray that our faith would be strengthened and that our hope would abound. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open your word yet again this morning, we plead with you that you would open our hearts to receive it. As we come to the end of this journey through the story of Ruth and of a redeemer and of an inheritance and of a son, we ask that you would go on to remind us daily of our own redemption and of our own redeemer and of our own inheritance. And when we feel like bitter Naomi, you would grant us faith and a softness of heart to continue hoping and trusting. And so God, we ask that you would make us like Ruth and Boaz to lay down our own lives for those around us in order that we would be fit to take them up again, eternal and imperishable in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And it's in his name we pray, amen. amen. Ruth chapter four, this is the word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, so-and-so, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me and I may know, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought you, bought you from the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now we, there is so much here that we could go. So many different, you know, paths we could take to navigate through Ruth chapter 4. And uh, we're obviously not going to get to all of them. So we also don't have time to go back and review the story. So hopefully you're, you are caught up with Ruth 1, 2, and 3. And if not, what I want you to do is after today's sermon, go home, read the book straight through, and you'll get a big overview of the story. And if you, are, um, if you aren't familiar with it, then you can have all the pieces fall into place then. So Ruth chapter 4 is where we are. So later today, if you haven't already, go read 1, 2, and 3. But, even though we can't review the storyline, we have to go back to the beginning of the story of Ruth to see where the story is ultimately going. So, remember I I said that names are are really important in this culture? Well, that's true, but also we see from the narrator of this book, the author of this book, that names are really important to him, to his story in particular. So how he writes the story is just a beautifully, it's a beautifully crafted story. And how he writes it, it, he makes names very important. And so we've seen this already with uh, Naomi and Boaz. Their names were both used and and, uh, expounded on as, as critical parts of the story, we haven't talked about the other people's names, but you can go with every name in this book, Ruth, friendship, you know, companionship. And, and all of it is really significant. And so we're going to look at the beginning, and I want, to, I want you to look and see who the very first person mentioned by name is in this book. You see who it is? Very first person mentioned by name. Anybody? No. Elimelech. Somebody try and say that? I heard somebody over here say it. Elimelech. Elimelech. Elimelech was the father and husband, and, and this is the guy whose name is in jeopardy of being forgotten. So Ruth is the story of redemption, right? Well, what's being redeemed? Naomi and Ruth are being redeemed to do what? For what? That the name of Elimelech would not be forgotten. And so Elimelech has another significant name. In fact, the the name Elimelech reveals the primary thread in the redemptive storyline of the entire book. The name of Elimelech shows us, it shines the light onto the the most important thread of redemption in this book. Do you know what his name is? You ready? Elimelech means God is king. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? God is king. And so... The man whose character dies at the very beginning of the story (laughs) is pointing us throughout these four chapters to the much older and deeper Catholic 
story, the much older and deeper, all-encompassing story, universal story of God's redemption and plan for human history. God is king. He is king of kings. He is king of kings. Don't just let that name just, just go in one ear and out the other. He is the king of the kings. This is not a democracy. He is the king. He is ruling. He is reigning on his eternal throne and nothing happens apart from his divine will and royal decree. Nothing happens apart from his divine will and royal decree. Yeah, but Caleb, didn't you hear those prayer requests this morning? Don't you know what's happening? Haven't you read the news? Don't you know who's running for president of the United States? God is king. Nothing happens apart from his divine will and royal decree. No famine, no marriage, no barren womb, no death. Nothing happens ever happens apart from God's sovereign will, apart from the will of the king of kings. So keep in mind then that Ruth is taking place during the time of the judges, not the kings. So this is the time in Israel before kings come about. They have judges. So Moses leads the people out of Israel and Moses, as he dies, he sets up Joshua and Joshua, they, they begin to have judges. And so what you have throughout the story, um, throughout the book of Judges, is you have this cycle. Israel trusts God, and then they forget. And then they fall into um, captivity and, and you know, despair and hopelessness and darkness and sin. And then God sends a redeemer. He sends a judge. He sends a righteous man to save. And then they remember God, and they come back to God, and God saves them and forgives them. And then what happens? They forget and then God sends them a judge, sends them a redeemer to come and, 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 and bring them back over and over. And this is what the story of Ruth is happening. In the time of the judges, in the time of the judges, it's in the time of Elimelech, though. They don't have a king in Israel, but they have a king in Israel. You know what I mean? They don't have a king, a man, but God is king. God is king. So when Israel rose up to demand an earthly king, the, the problem wasn't that they wanted a man to be a king, that, that, they, that they wanted a king. That actually wasn't the problem. The problem is that they said they want a king like the other nations because Israel had a king. And God, as we see from this story, is preparing for himself a kingship, a kingship. So I'll just, spoiler alert, David is the King David, right? David is King David, so this is the end of the story. We get to David, King David, great king of Israel. And God is preparing for himself a king. So Elimelech testified of this reality that Israel had a king in the time of the judge, that God is king. So in verses uh, one and two, we see Boaz, he goes up, excuse me. Boaz goes up to the gate because this is where the elders um, this is where the elders were, and this is where the people did business in the day. And, and so he waits for the relative whose name the narrator never mentions. Names are important to you, narrator. Names are important. And guess what? He does not mention this man's name. He only is referred to by this Hebrew phrase, Poloni Almoni. It sounds, it's, it's like saying so-and-so, Poloni Almoni, mm, so-and-so, and rolls off the tongue the same way, right? And it, it, it means so-and-so or such a one. And so Boaz, in other words, he says, hey, oh, what's your face? Come on over here and sit down. Let's have a talk. Hey, so-and-so, come on over here. Hey, what's your face? Get on over here. Let's talk. N newer translations like my Bible, ESV, New King James, things, NIV, those kind of Bibles sometimes translate it as friend, which actually I believe is misleading. I, I think it's misleading because Boaz was very aware of this man's relationship to Elimelech and his relationship to himself. He, he knew that this man was in the, in the line before him. And I think it would be unreasonable for us to assume that Boaz knew this much without knowing this guy's name or, or without uh, finding out the guy's name before they're gonna have this really important talk. And so something, this omission, whether by Boaz or by the narrator, this omission of this man's name, this potential redeemer, the omission of his name is is purposeful, and therefore it is important to our story, to the point of the story. 
So uh, verses three through 13, we see Naomi's family. Land is eligible, eligible to be purchased because she needs redemption. She needs somebody to redeem her and take care of her. And so this man wants it. He wants it. He says, hey, will you redeem the land? And he says, yeah, I'll redeem the land. But then Boaz says, there's a catch. The man who redeems the land acquires Ruth with it. And what does old, what's his face say? Oh, never mind. <laughs> never mind. He wants the land, but he, would, he doesn't want any part in redeeming Ruth. He doesn't want any part in redeeming Naomi. And the reasons that he gives is what? What does he say? He says, I don't want to impair my own inheritance or I don't want to corrupt my own inheritance or spoil my own legacy. And how would redeeming Ruth, you know, he wants the land, how would redeeming Ruth spoil or corrupt his legacy? And we're going to come back around to that in a bit. For now, here in verse 6, what we see is Boaz has accomplished his task and he's going to marry his beloved. And the men go through this strange and mysterious custom, taking their sandals off and, and uh, exchanging things and and they confirm their transaction in the presence of the elders and in the presence of all the people. And, and Boaz finally buys the land and he finally redeems Ruth. The end, happily ever after. No, 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 no. It's not the end of the story. So the elders pronounce this blessing upon their marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And, and it's an interesting blessing. It, it, this is one of the parts where we could just go and we could do all kinds of exploring and, and looking at the Jacob and Rachel and Leah and all this stuff, but we don't have time to do that today. So Boaz is a descendant of Judah. Who's Judah? Well, he's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Tribe of Judah. Judah is a son of Jacob or Israel who was married to Rachel and Leah. And so he says, he's pointing back to his heritage. And if you remember, I got to actually preach through Genesis 38 when we went through our Genesis series uh, a while back. And I got to preach through Genesis 38 because I just love the story of Judah and Tamar. And if you remember that story, you will know it's a crazy one. You'll remember that it's a crazy one. You should do that today too. Go read through Genesis 38. Um, we, we don't have time to do that today, but if you, if you go and you, and you read through that story, what you'll see, I, I want you to do that and look at the parallels, okay? And what you'll see is, you'll see this crazy story of unwilling redeemers, just like we see here in Ruth, this guy's not willing to redeem. And so you see this crazy story of unwilling redeemers, you see this um, unlikely redemption for this widow, who insisted on staying a part of this family line. She says, I'm insisting on staying a part of this family line. Another woman, just like Ruth, who could have gone to find another husband, but she says, no, I'm staying with this family. I have to have a son from this family. And it's like this wrestling with God moment, you know? And, and both of these women do this. If you go a bit further than in Genesis, and we, and, I, and, and we touched on this too when we went through Genesis, in Genesis 49, where, where uh, Jacob is pronouncing the blessing on his 12 sons, the 12 sons who would become the you know, 12 tribes of Israel. He's pronouncing this blessing, and what you read when he gets to Judah is that he prophesies this pronouncement of a perpetual kingship from Judah from Judah, this perpetual kingship from Judah. And so it's really fascinating. And so Boaz is from the tribe of Judah. And this again ties into why we, the story ends with David, the king, because this is all part of the plan, in other words. God is working this kingship out through this, this roller coaster ride of a story, sweet and bitter. So one thing that strikes me is the fact that even though Ruth even though Ruth was married for 10 years and was barren that entire time, 10 years of barrenness, 10 years. She's barren the entire time she's married to Malone. Boaz and the elders pronouncing this blessing and seeking redemption. They do not even begin to doubt. There is not a shred of doubt in the book of Ruth, that the marriage will not lead to offspring. Do you, do you, did you catch that when we read chapter four? So here, 
Ruth is barren for 10 years married to this man, and yet there is not a shred of doubt throughout the story that Ruth, when she finally is redeemed, will have a child. If it was me and you, what would we be doing? Well, God, my doctor said, <laughs> uh, there's not a shred of doubt, and this is all purposeful. The narrator puts it this way on purpose. There's no doubt. There's only faith. There's only hope and light, and it's amazing. So at the right time, what do we see? What, is, what do you see there in verse? Uh, it's a striking verse. What do you see here in, uh, in verse? Uh, I lost it. Where is it? Oh, right there, verse 13. What do you see in verse 13? Right on time. It's a striking verse. What does it say? It says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and what? And the Lord gave her conception. Because the Lord always gives conception when it happens. Ruth the Moabite and Boaz the son of a prostitute conceive and bear a son. Obed, who fathers Jesse, who fathers David. So verses 14 through 22, notice how, notice how then in verse 14, the narrator shifts. So this story is called Ruth. But in verse 14, what you see here, come, the beginning of the story begins not with Ruth, it begins with Elimelech and Naomi going. Now here we get to the end of the story and the narrator shifts from Ruth to Naomi. She shifts back onto Naomi and the narrator says, a son is born to Naomi. Now obviously it was the child of Ruth and Boaz, but, but what he's saying, what he's telling us, what we are to see is that there is contrast from the beginning to the end. There's contrast from I am empty to now fullness. So when, when uh, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, do you remember what she says? She says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, call me Mara. Why? She says, because the Lord has brought me back empty. But now what do we see? We see the Lord, we see her father has filled her up again. We see her father, just like in the story of the prodigal son, he returns home and he says, I'm empty. Don't, I can't even be your son. Just make me one of your house slaves. Just, can I just be a slave in your house? And he says, you know, he puts the robe and the ring on. Why? He says, no, I'm going to fill you back up. I'm going to restore and redeem everything that has been lost. And so Naomi comes back and, and, and now we see at the end of the story the shift take place and now we see the contrast. She was empty, but now she has been filled back up. She has been made fruitful again. She was, before she was left hopeless and in despair, but now we see her joy and her complete restoration, her complete restoration. Why complete restoration? Well, if you look at Ruth 4.15, you, you see the women say, more to you than seven sons. What are they saying there? Well, biblical numbers mean something, just like names do. Number seven means something. Does anybody know what seven means in the Bible? completion, complete, perfect, lacking nothing. And so the women say, Ruth has been more to you than seven sons. In other words, Ruth has completed you perfectly. How? Well, through Ruth came this redeemer. Ruth was not just seeking, I, I said this before, Ruth was not just seeking to comfort and care for poor Naomi until she passes on and I can go finally live, have my life back. No. Ruth had no obligation to Naomi other than what Ruth imposed upon herself. And Ruth was not just saying, I feel bad leaving her. I'll just stay with her until she dies, you know? No. No. Ruth is saying, I'm staying a part of this family and I'm going to pursue your redemption, your complete, perfect redemption. And that's exactly what she did. So we also, in verse 15, 
notice in verse 15, there's another thing you see. It says, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. This is the exact Hebrew phrase. Restore of, the word there is restore of nefesh. Restore of life. It encompasses life, soul, heart, mind, body. It, it encompasses everything. It's the same phrase. This is the same phrase in, in Ruth 4.15. He will be a restorer of life that is used later in a psalm written by Naomi's great-great-grandson, David. Yeah. And he uses this phrase again. And, he, and this is what he says. You might recognize this psalm he says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he restoreth my soul same phrase he restores my life my heart my body my mind he restores now who is this restorer of life, soul, heart, mind, body that, that these women are talking about to Naomi? Who is it? it are, we, are they talking about um, a grandchild? Are we talking about King, uh, King David's great-great-grandfather or great-grandfather? Are they talking, ab are they talking about the same restore of life that David is talking about. That's who they're talking about. Look at this. David, David was a shepherd before he became a king. And God called him from the fields as a shepherd boy to be a king. And David here now says this. David is writing this. And he's not writing about himself. He's not writing about his great-great-grandpa. He writes this, The Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. He is, he is the one who the women are talking about. The Lord is the one the women are talking about. The Lord is the restorer who ministered to David and, and who ministers to you, right? We, we've all, I trust, been comforted by Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. We take great comfort in that very first line. Don't miss the preeminence of God that is being magnified. The preeminence of God that is being magnified. The Lord is the good shepherd. The Lord is the promised king from the tribe of Judah. This is the point of ending the story with the genealogy, with Jesse fathered David. Why? Why Jesse fathered David? Why end it there? Why not end it with, and, uh, and they lived happily ever after. They had a son and, the son, and Naomi was very happy. The end. Why Jesse fathered David? Well, of course, David goes on to become the shepherd king. He's the shepherd boy who becomes the king. God is king. We end with David, okay? But if we end the book and we just gaze adoringly at David, we've missed the point. <laughs> we've missed something. How do we know that? Well, David died. Look, listen to what Isaiah wrote later on about this piece of genealogy. Go, go to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, and listen to this. Listen to what Isaiah wrote about this piece of genealogy, Jesse, Father David. Isaiah in, in chapter 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness 
the belt of his loins. Like I've said, Ruth is a story of a king ascending, like a sunrise, to break into our dark night and to banish hopelessness and despair. And so by faith, we see the story of a son and a king who comes to receive his inheritance and he brings gifts with him. But we see with Ruth that this son actually becomes a gift himself, right? He's, he's set onto Naomi's lap. The son is the gift. And just like the son of Ruth and Boaz becomes even himself a gracious gift to Naomi, this story, this son, is only a foreshadowing. It's only a prophecy. Do you see? It's only a foreshadowing. It's only a prophecy of the true son who is coming. The son who would be given to Mary and Joseph. You know, Mary, who said, you will conceive. Mary, we have this magical conception, right? The son given to Mary and Joseph, who wouldn't just be a gift to an elderly widow, who would become a gift to who? The world, right? You see, Ruth is, is pointing us to Jesus. We say that, but do you see how it's pointing us to Jesus? The son, the king who's coming, who's going to be a gift. This is Jesus. And so the son of David, who's coming, who would be the king of King David? Jesus, the son of David, if Jesus had a last name, it wouldn't be Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus' last name, if you want to think about it that way, would be Davidson. <laughs> Jesus, son of David. Jesus, Davidson. That's his last name. It's not Christ. Christ is the title. Christ is the title. That means Redeemer, Messiah. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. So Jesus, the son of David, who would come later and be the king of King David. Is the, Jesus, the shepherd Lord, who would restore our souls, right? The shepherd Lord who would restore our souls to the uttermost. The man who was and is our everlasting redeemer and the purchaser of our incorruptible redemption. So we have Ruth, Boaz, they're all picturing Christ. This entire story is pointing us to Christ. It's not a straight allegory. In other words, it's not where Boaz represents Christ, Ruth represents the church. It's not that. Boaz pictures Christ for us. Ruth pictures Christ for us. And, and Elimelech can even picture Christ for us. We have the, a lot of things going on here, and, it's, and it really is, it, start to, it starts to be overwhelmingly joyful when you start to see it the good news. And this is the point of the story of Ruth, redemption. That's the point of the story of Ruth, redemption. God is king, is vindicated and lifted up from fruitlessness. Remember, he had two sons, but the two sons died without any children. And so he, he dies. Elimelech dies, his two sons die, and now his, his legacy, his family line is cut off. But God as king is vindicated. He is lifted up from the darkness, from the, from the pit. He's lifted up from the grave, from this impossible despair, from death itself to glory and majesty in the end. Why? Because God loves these stories. <laughs> How? Because when a single grain of wheat fell to the ground and died, it produced what? fruit. It produced a lasting harvest, a harvest of other seeds who likewise fell to the ground and died. And so the ending of the story of Ruth actually, truly, really is. It's not just a cool cliche. It's not just a cool, like, oh, that's neat. This actually, truly is the beginning of another story. It, it's, in, it's right in the line with the story of Jesus. And so if you actually go to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, and the genealogy of Matthew that he lays out of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, what you see is five women listed. 
and Ruth is one of them. Tamar is one of them. Bathsheba, who, you know, had that thing with David, not so great idea. Turns out that's where Jesus came from. Well, who did I say? Ruth, Tamar, Bathsheba, Rahab is mentioned, and then, of course, Mary. This is, this is incredible. This is the point of the story. This is a the beginning of the story we see in Ruth. And so the bitter providence that we saw that was rampant in the beginning of the book, it actually turns out to be the very thing, the very thing that is being worked together for the good. Do you see that? For the happily ever after, God sent the famine. For the happily ever after, God made them barren. And for the happily ever after, Elimelech dies. Malon, Kilion, die. Why? For the happily ever after. And that's exactly what Paul teaches us in his letter to the Romans, isn't it? Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, right here. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see this? God is working all things together for good and glory. Do you see that? He's working all things together for good and for you. He has called you. He's predestined you. He's foreknown you. He has justified you and sanctified you. And in the end, you will be glorified. Glory to God. <laughs> you will be glorified. And so all things work together for good. He, conform he, he predestined us for what? Well, yes, glory. But what does this actually say here? He predestined us. It's not in that part. It's in the other part. It says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. You see that right there? Whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now, let's think about that. This is the son. Who is this? This is the Son of God, right? This is Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> Go to the beginning of your Bible. This is the Son that was promised. The Son, the seed of the woman. He says, the seed of the woman will do what? Slay the dragon. The seed of the woman crush the dragon's head. What's going to happen to the son? What's going to happen to his heel? He's going to feel it. This is the son that was promised in Genesis 3 who finally and fatally slayed the dragon. And this is the son who will eternally wear the glorified scars. You see this in John chapter 20 verses 20 and 27, he will forever wear the glorified scars from that painfully victorious battle. Jesus Christ in heaven right now has holes in his hands that we can see, that Thomas could feel and touch. Why? Well, it means a lot of things for us. But one of the things it means for us is that your suffering, your trials, your tears, and even your sinful failures are not meaningless. They're not without a point and without a purpose in the hand of God. I mean, do you hear me? Even your sinful failures are not without a purpose in the hand of God. He is working. What does Paul say? Most things, some things, only the good things? No, he says, I am working all things. All things. They are tools in the hand of the Almighty Father who is working for good and for glory. They are the rod and the staff of the Good Shepherd who promises to restore your soul. So look what Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He says, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Yo, you see Boaz, he's the redeemer. Why? Because old what's-his-face said, nah, I'll pass. I'm more concerned with corrupting my own inheritance and corrupting my own legacy. And so he, how would this happen? How would this happen? Why, why does he say, I'm, I'm concerned with corrupting my own inheritance. I'm going to pass. He says, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And so Boaz gets to do it. But raising up the offspring would mean that his material legacy would diminish. His material legacy would diminish. This man stood to personally gain from Elimelech's wealth. And not just his wealth in terms of money and land. He stood to gain from Elimelech's social capital. So Elimelech was without a doubt a, a, um, a prince, you could say, in Israel. He wasn't just anybody. He's... He's Elimelech. And so this man also stood to gain the social capital that Elimelech had, his status. And so um, redeeming Ruth and giving her a child would mean that the child would receive what is his father's instead of, oh, what's his name? (laughs) Instead of so-and-so, this child. So we see that forgotten nobody that forgotten nobody was dead set on protecting his legacy. And he sought to do this, how? By clinging, right? He sought to do this by clinging hard to what what he had, to the temporal and fleeting things of this world. And what's the tragic irony? We don't even know his name. What's the tragic irony? This man who's so dead set on protecting his legacy now goes in the history books as the idiot who didn't get into the line of Christ. We don't even know his name. And so this man, this so this so-and-so, this nobody who was not willing to lose himself to raise up the banner of Elimelech, who was not willing to lose himself to lift up God is king. This is obviously in sharp contrast to who? To Ruth? It's in sharp contrast to Boaz? It's, they were selfless. You know, Ruth was selfless, completely selfless to Naomi. Boaz was completely selfless in, in taking up the, the role of redeemer for Ruth. And so this is in stark contrast to old so-and-so who's clinging bitterly to his temporal and fleeting treasures. And isn't this exactly what Jesus taught us? Right? If you want to save your life, you better let go. You better lose it. And all those who would lose their lives for Jesus' sake, what does he say? You will save it. You can... It doesn't make sense to us. The math doesn't add up to us, but this is the way it is. Being a kinsman redeemer truly was a completely selfless task. It was, we could put it a different way. It says, this man wasn't willing to decrease in order that this son of redemption would increase. You see that storyline anywhere else? He was not willing to decrease that another would increase. He wasn't willing to lay down his life that the son of his redemption would be glorified. And so Boaz and Ruth are pictures of Christ, our redeemer, because we are in Christ though, they have become to us. So again, we don't look at this story and say, and, and just simply look at Christ as if he's a mural on a wall. No, by the light of the world, we see everything. And so we look to this story and we see Christ being magnified in the, in the lives of Boaz and Ruth. And what do we do now? Well, we who are in Christ, we have become 
um, we have taken up this mantle ourselves. They have become for us a reflection of our own call and commissioned to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, like Paul said. And they, they are examples of how we who have been redeemed are to be are to live in light of that redemption. How we who have been reconciled are to carry out that ministry of reconciliation to the world. And so, the story of Ruth, in the story of Ruth, who are you? Who are you? Who, who am I in this story, God? Am I clinging to the temporal, fleeting things of this world like old so-and-so? Thinking, thinking that this is how I'm gonna save it all? Thinking that this is how everything's gonna work out in the end? Just hold on tighter? Or are we Boaz? Are we Ruth who, who are willing to lay down our life for others? Are you going to willingly decrease that the son of your redemption might be magnified? Are you going to willing, you're gonna decrease one way or the other. This is the point. You're gonna decrease like we all decrease. But there's a way that you can decrease <laughs> that is magical. It's the gospel way. Will you cling to what you cannot hold? Or will you give yourself up completely and trust the restorer of life? So in Christ, your story will be one of death. It will be one of death and division and resurrection and redemption and restoration. In Christ, your story will be a story of fertility made barrenness to be made abundantly fruitful at last. In Christ. It's a fruitfulness in Christ that will cost you absolutely everything. Everything. This is why Jesus tells the parable of the man who has to sell everything to buy the field. You cannot cling to what you have and receive what Christ is giving. You have to let everything go. And it will cost you absolutely everything. But when you do finally let go and, and, and you finally get to the edge of that cliff, you edge of yourself and there's, there's, nowhere, there's nowhere else to turn and you jump off and you pray that prayer that we talked about, you know, Geronimo, amen. You pray that prayer, hopefully and desperately and it is then you can finally rest. <laughs> That's where you will find your rest. That's where you're going to find rest. You're going to be free from clinging. You can rest assured that God is the restorer of life and that you, that your redeemer has secured your inheritance. And you can rest assured that God is king. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to get ready to come to the table now. And so... I read a little bit of Psalm 23. And, and Psalm 23 is a battle psalm. It is a battle psalm, and this is what it goes on to say. You, you're probably familiar with it. It goes on to say, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely and goodness, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We walk in the valley of death's shadow, in the presence of our enemies. That's where we walk. But we walk with a guide. And do you notice where we walk? We walk upon paths of righteousness. And so it is here on the paths of righteousness, in the presence of our enemies, in the valley of death's shadow, that our good shepherd prepares a table for us. In the bitterness as well as the sweetness, God is the king working all for good and for 
glory. And so we can rest assured that whatever season you find yourself in this morning, whether you are in the roaring harvest or whether you are in the dark of winter, whatever season you find yourself in, however low the valley or however high your mountain is today, God is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And so goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Christians, come and welcome to the table. Come to Jesus Christ. Come on. This is the charge. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so this applies to everything from how you will vote in the upcoming election to where you're going to decide to eat today. It applies to everything. So be like Ruth and be like Boaz and be like Jesus. (laughs) Your life now as a Christian is a perpetual opportunity for you to fearlessly display God's gracious redemption as you lay it down, as you lay down your life for your wife, for your husband, for your children, for your churchmen, for your countrymen, for your employees, for your employers. And ultimately through all of our laying down that we do it that the glory of God would shine through our fragile and cracked attempts, right? That his glory would shine through our fragile, cracked attempts at getting things right. And, and through that light shining, he would light up the night. He would light up Taylor, Texas. <laughs> he would light up your family gatherings. Let let it be so. Do not be afraid because God is the restorer of life. Amen? Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.